This is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor of Sacred Heart Parish and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. This is August the 6th in the magic of making recordings. Whenever you're hearing this recording, I'm speaking of this anniversary date. And it is an anniversary for me, one that sticks in my mind quite readily and one I call to mind over and over again. Now, for most people who consult the church calendar, there are two notable significant dates on this um, events on this date. The first is that it is the Feast of the Transfiguration. Jesus goes up to Mount Tabor and is transfigured before his disciples, thus revealing his glory to them. In the Gospel of Mark, it's the exact middle of the Gospel, and it signals the end of Jesus' preparation of his disciples to understand and respond to his invitation and to know the content of his mission. It's the transition to the revelation of the coming passion on the cross. In all of the Gospels, it's the moment in which the disciples become aware of the glory of Jesus and the power of his mission on earth. In the story, Jesus is seen conversing with Moses and Elijah. He is no mere rabbi, and his mission is not simply to convey a prophetic message to the people of his time. Jesus, in their sight, is the fulfillment of the plan of God and the culmination of all that God has done for his people. So, as you can see, this is a meaningful feast day. We celebrated on Sunday this year, and this scene is recounted for all of us from Matthew's Gospel. We also read the accounts from the Gospels in our preparations for Lent, so everybody's familiar with the story. This day is special. We set it aside so as to continue to remember the identity of Jesus and his significance in the story of Israel and the ongoing nature of God's revelation to us. But it's not about the transfiguration that I'm reminiscing. I'm thinking back to the year 1978 to this date. If we check the church calendar again, we note that this is the date, 1978, when Pope Paul VI died. He had been in poor health for some time, and it had been announced for some weeks that he was not doing well. On this date, August the 6th, 1978, he succumbed to his illness. It was not a great surprise to anyone. He was almost 81 years old and had been Pope from 1963, a little over 15 years. And his pontificate was filled with difficulties and controversies as he strove to, to preside over and to finish the work of the Second Vatican Council. And afterwards, he presided over the changes enacted by the work of the council. As always, when councils are finished, the decisions they make and the alterations in the life and plans of the church take a long time to enter into the actual workings of the church in the everyday. It was the destiny of Paul VI to suffer the difficulties of making these changes a reality. And, of course, he had to do this in the face of a world that was changing rapidly. The threat of nuclear war hung over every part of Europe and the West. There was the rash of proxy wars going on throughout the world, the most notable of which was in Vietnam. But there were others throughout the continents. This was the time also when the difficulties in, of, and uh, insurgencies in Latin America reached its peak. In addition, politics all over the world were restive as the world moved from being an aggregation of agricultural societies to become, an, to become urban societies. 
questions of the role of politics and religion and the in the face of astounding prosperity and unanswerable economic questions and the burgeoning awareness of fundamental human rights and the dignity of a human person in international questions, these were all present amid the church's struggle to live out its mission as the authentic voice of Christ in the modern world. The Pope faced all of these things. He also faced the reality of growing disaffection from the Catholic Church all over the world. Behind the Iron Curtain, there was real oppression of believers who were suffering for their faith. In Latin America, Protestant missionaries in the Pentecostal movement were drawing off religious energies and religious affiliation in places that had been Catholic for 400 years. And the 1960s culminated in a trending cultural energy that placed hard brackets around religious faith exercised by young people and intellectuals. It was suddenly very, very unfashionable to be a believer or to note the possibility of belief to anyone. The Pope had these problems to deal with by the bushel buckets full. His pontificate had been filled with controversies and difficulties that had alienated many people, much to his pain and anguish. Even when he was right, as we have come to see all these many years later, he was able to take no joy in being correct in the face of the resistance he endured over and over again. It was a tough time to be Pope. He had been elected. He performed his role as a true martyr to the expectations and demands it deduced from him. And he died, at least in part, because of the suffering he endured in the role. When I heard of his death on the radio, it was Saturday night here in the U.S., Sunday in Rome. Upon hearing it, Father Wade Darnell, in whose, car I w- in whose car I was riding, said, God rest his soul. He'll be a saint someday. I thought it a bit extreme to imagine a pope simply by being pope should be considered saintly. But Father Darnell apparently knew a lot more about the sufferings and the accomplishments of this pope than I did as a seminarian. Pope Paul VI was canonized in 2018, 40 years after his death. But it's not the death of Pope Paul VI that I want to commemorate on this day, although I do want to commemorate August the 6th, 1978, because this was the date of my first sermon. On this weekend, as part of my time as a seminarian, my pastor with whom I was working, Father Wade Darnell in Frederick, Oklahoma, invited me to prepare and then deliver a sermon on this signal weekend of the Transfiguration, and as it turned out, the death of the reigning pontiff. More than any other attributes of the date, I remember my first foray into the world of preaching and the power of the pulpit. It was something, it's something that I've lived with now for more than 43 years. This first time and the first date stick in my mind. Like most Catholics, I didn't grow up with a great deal of concern about or fascination with preaching. We went to Mass every Sunday, and over the years, I'd come to be familiar with the different priests and pastors who staffed the parish of Immaculate Conception here in Oklahoma City, where my parents and brothers and sisters and many of my aunts and uncles went to Mass. In all of the many Sundays I attended, I never much remembered what the preaching was about. I was more likely to remember that Father seemed prepared and was articulate or not than I was likely to remember what he said specifically. This is in contrast to many of the people I've known who grew up in non-Catholic environments for whom preaching was a major part of their ecclesial experience and for whom it was very important. My girlfriend in college had grown up as a Baptist, and she talked about her pastor and his preaching all the time. In fact, she talked about it in ways it had never occurred to me even to think about the sermons I'd heard or had been exposed to all the time I went to church. 
I went to her, her hometown with her one Sunday, and we went to church together. At the end of the service, she spoke to her pastor and scolded him about how long he preached. That was something I had never once considered doing, no matter who was pastor or what he may have been like in the parish where I grew up. She was much more at ease around him and his role and his preaching than I ever was with any priest I'd ever been around. And it seemed to be that way with many of my non-Catholic acquaintances. They just had a whole different way of talking about preaching than I did. And it reflected their very different expectations about the pulpit than I had. Growing up, I heard my relatives talk about the German pastor they had in Okarchi when they were young. My uncle said that when he was a kid, the pastor preached every Sunday for one hour in German and then for another hour in English. That was the norm for everyone and everybody came to expect it. I didn't ask him if the sermon was the same in both languages, and I wouldn't be surprised if it were different. But they were marinated in the power of the word from the pulpit in ways I hadn't experienced when I was growing up. Preaching was something that we all thought to be secondary. It was never in any way something primary in the life of the faith for us. The Eucharist was vital, and we never ever missed Mass on Sunday or Holy Days, because it was what was expected of us. But in those expectations, we didn't have a lot of anticipation with regard to the explanation of and the experience of the power of the Word of God. Preaching by the pastor or the priest was something that was part of Mass, but we never thought it was that important, and we certainly never thought it was at the heart of what we'd come for. That I know of, the priests of the time, especially in the U.S., did at least a moderately responsible job in their preaching assignments. Not everyone, of course. One of my priest friends told me, much older than I, that at his parish, when he was growing up, the sermon was pretty much the priest reading the readings of the day in English, after having read them in Latin, and then going through the announcements in the bulletin. After a while, no one expected the priest to have much of anything to say about the meaning of the scriptures or the teachings of the church. This was also the time in which it was very common for the sermons that were preached to be about particular teachings or subjects for belief rather than about the Word of God just read to the people. In fact, at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, the role of the priest at the pulpit was explained that it was that the priest ought to be able to explain the faith to the people. There was not a lot of emphasis on the power of the Word of God and its role in the life of the faith. It just wasn't central to what we were experiencing. In fact, Several years ago, I ran across a report of a priest in New York City who had begun a movement in 1919 to simply end preaching at Mass in the Catholic Church. His purpose was twofold. One was that so many priests preached poorly that it was a major detraction from the dignity of worship and the gathering of the people. Why waste their time, he said, on what was done badly? I think this was so powerfully and humorously told in an account by the Catholic author Flannery O'Connor. She said there was a Methodist family in her small town that had come to the Catholic Church one Sunday. The parish had a notoriously poor, distracted preacher whose sermons everybody simply endured. The Methodists came that Sunday and then began to inquire about how to join the church. And when they were asked about why they wanted to become Catholic, the father of the family said that if the preaching was so poor everywhere and the church survived, there had to be something so powerful there he needed to pay attention to it. The second reason that this priest in New York wanted to ban preaching at Mass was that, in his opinion, it was a distraction from what was really important, which was the Eucharist. 
why delay what everybody had come for, which was communion, just to get to it? Just get to it was his point of view. Of course, he was suppressed. Those in charge knew that the word of God was integral to the celebration of mass, even if it was diminished in comparison to other times in the life of the church, in which there were priests and bishops who had written sermons that were still being read a thousand years later. These authorities acknowledged that he was on the wrong track. But even then, they didn't do much to address his concerns. This culminated for me in the pastor we had when I was in high school. He took to preaching only about once a month or so. So in the in-between Sundays, he would just go from the readings right to the Apostles' Creed. This led my brother to say once, after I'd been ordained for a while, that he thought this priest gave the best sermons he'd ever heard. Yeah, he said, you can't beat what Father said when he finished the gospel and then, and then announced, please remain standing. That is, for the beginning of the creed. It was a joke, but a pointed one. We didn't have a long history of, or a great deal of experience of the centrality of preaching in our days when we were growing up. This relative inattention was addressed at the Second Vatican Council when the bishops there wanted to reanimate the energy of preaching and the centrality of the Word of God at Mass. They did several things as they discussed what should be changed. First, they elucidated the role of priest to include his focus on preaching and living the Word of God in his life. In their description of the role of the priest in the church, they wrote that the first work of the priest was to proclaim the gospel. In this context, the word of God was not secondary to the identity of the priest, and it certainly was not supposed to be of relative unimportance in the life of worship in the church. The second thing they addressed was the importance of explicating the scriptures and delving into the richness of the word. This meant that preaching was to be specifically tied to the readings proclaimed, not simply to themes to be preached concerning particular topics or dogma. In the usage of the day, the priests were to preach homilies. That is, they were to preach from the scriptures and the dynamics of the readings, rather than to preach sermons, which were topical subjects to be addressed apart from readings and psalms. Of course, the truth of the matter is that a good preacher could bring forth from the gospel the entire panoply of church teaching. This distinction didn't limit anyone when it came to igniting the hearts of the hearers. But the change in emphasis was important. The priest in his preaching was to find his energy and communicate the power of the word of God by proclaiming the heart of Jesus' message, not simply telling his parishioners about what the church taught. Of course, this new emphasis demanded a new set of skills from those who would do the preaching. It's not easy to enter into the power of the word of God, and it's especially not easy to read the hearts of your people and respond to their needs as they strive to put the word of God into practice. It's been two generations now since the overt emphasis on the part of the bishops at the council, and priests all over the world are still striving to live out this challenge in their preaching. It's still a near irresistible temptation to tell our people facts about the church or information about the gospel, rather than to enter into the dynamic of the word among us and in our lives. I know this challenge is with, is with me all the time, and I don't always pass the test. It's just a lot easier to share what I know than it is to allow the word to live in me and to bring us all into the place where we can live it together. But on this date, in 1978, I mounted the pulpit at the Air Force Chapel at Altus Air Force Base to begin my foray into preaching. I wasn't afraid to talk in public. One of the great gifts I've been given is that I've never had stage fright. 
Crowds never bothered me, and I was never afraid to talk in front of people. And I had had great teachers in the seminary. I had not yet studied preaching, but our New Testament teachers were a cut above the ordinary. They'd been excellent in giving us both a comprehensive overview of the message of the Gospels and the epistles, as well as helping us along in the specifics of the topics and concerns addressed there. So I looked at the story of the Transfiguration and spent some time readying what I was going to say, and then I took to the pulpit. What I found out was that it was much harder than I thought. First of all, I had no context for what I was supposed to do. I'd listened to thousands of sermons in my life, but that was something like eating thousands of meals, which I'd also done. But it didn't equip me to know anything about cooking. I might love the taste of what was for, uh, what we had for supper, but it, it didn't help me to know how to fix it or how to make it better. When I sat down at my desk to prepare my sermon, I had no idea what I should say. So I did what I knew, which was to, pre- to prepare a kind of mini class on this portion of the gospel. Since I'd been in school for more than 20 years in a row, I treated this time on Sunday as a small class in a large classroom. It was dreadful. Teaching, even when it's good teaching, isn't preaching. I could tell in a moment as I went through the subject matter, I wasn't connecting with the people there who were patiently waiting for me to just get through. My sermon ended. I came down from the pulpit. I sat down to my in my seat next to the pastor, and I was glad to escape into the liturgy of the Eucharist. All of it was much harder than I had imagined it would be. Preaching is like that. It's much harder to accomplish than it appears. I suppose it's something like parenting. Nobody knows exactly what to do because there's no formula that's going to work for everyone everywhere, and no two situations or environments are exactly the same. And when parents are parenting well, no one notices. It's only when something goes extremely badly or someone has a particular reaction to it that anyone notices at all. And often, no one can tell anything about it until an entire generation has passed. Looking back over one's shoulders, the effects of what's been done or not done becomes obvious, at least to those who look, with some care to see. But until then, nobody notices anything. In fact, the heart of preaching is the exact reason it's so hard, and it's this. The preacher is actually preaching himself. I mean by that the preacher is inviting the listener to enter into a journey that he's entered onto. The Word of God has made an impact on the life of the preacher, and that impact is what he's talking about to the people he's preaching to. It's not that he stands up and talks about himself and his life continually. That would be boring to all of those who have to listen to him Sunday after Sunday. And let's face it, no one's life is that interesting except perhaps to the one who's doing the describing. If you have to listen to it, it becomes much, very much less the object of great interest. No, the preacher encounters the word of God and finds in it where it has touched his life. He then invites those who are listening to find a way into this same experience. This presumes the preacher does, in fact, find a way into the encounter with the word, and that word has, in fact, changed or moved him. In addition, it presumes that he can talk about the change or the movement in a way that somebody else finds inviting, or at least meaningful. This is abetted by the fact that the preacher can talk about how his life has not been moved by what he's encountered. On the Feast of the Transfiguration, for example, the preacher might just as well comment on how he has never struggled with the identity of Jesus as so many other people have. 
And so finding out who Jesus is isn't a great concern for him. And so he can invite others to know the Jesus he knows, or at least to acknowledge the Jesus he has come to understand. Preaching, therefore, is the willingness to share the preacher's life with those who hear, positive or negative. At least this is what, we're, what we all work toward. It's much easier simply to describe something we know. I can talk for hours about the things I know of the gospel or what we can do together that would make the church better. And all these things might be pretty important, but compared to entering into the power of God's word, they pale. The best metaphor is that the word of God is like a two-edged sword. That's a technical description. A two-edged sword is one that's made for stabbing, not for slashing. It's stabbing that causes fatal damage, much more so than the more dramatic but less effective slashing of a sword. When you're stabbed, the blade is in you, rearranging your organs and causing its effects almost before you know it. Stabbed, you're changed, and quickly. That's the Word of God in action. The challenge of preaching is to get away from slashing with the knowledge and information we accumulate and arm ourselves with and get busy on the attack with the true stabbing power of the word. The Roman legionaries were taught to come up from behind their shields and thrust up with the short swords that they carried, disrupting and undoing the attack of their enemies. Preaching is supposed to be the same. It took me a good long while to learn that. On August the 6th, 1978, I preached my first sermon. As I did, the Pope died. I'm pretty sure the former preaching didn't cause the latter death. Although in the spiritual realm, he may have, had, he may have somehow been aware in the fabric of the universe of the truth of my attempt at which it could have caused his death from a broken heart. The best I can say as I look back over my shoulder at this auspicious date is that I've tried to get better. I may still break hearts, but I hope it's only so that the light can get in. Back in just a moment. final segment, Faith in Verse. We have a poem today called Tabor. Jesus's face glowing, they all saw clearly, each of them knowing this was not merely another garden night, another long seminar. They were provided sight beyond blemish or mar. It was he truly there with company, Moses present justly, Elijah come freely. In his element they saw at home there prophecy and the law, fully free and fair. Seeing they knew he was the one, sighted in view, God's only son. Darkness then came, all disappeared, their fears lame, all future feared. And it all passed because as before, in a flash, they would it ignore, except for one item, the resurrection, Jesus had sighted more than a suggestion. Look, all of you, this is now, this is your due. Before it, bow. That's Tabor.
that in the weeks to come, you can continue to join us here on Living Catholic. We hope to go below the surface of the kind of events and difficulties that we experience to see the life of the faith and to live it in ways that are meaningful and important for us and for the world. Hope to see you then. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.